Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where me and my brother John answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, It's cold here, so I thought I would read a poem about spring when it comes time for me to read my poem. But I don't want to talk too much today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm afraid if you don't want to talk too much because that means that I'll have to talk more, which is scary for me, and I don't really know how to do it. I know how to talk the amount that I currently talk and not more than that. I feel like not talking is easier than talking more. I could be wrong. Uh, other than that, I'm doing well. My uh, my life is good. I've got friends staying in my house, and uh, and I just got back from the East Coast, which was a very weird and fun trip. Well, Hank, I mentioned how much uh, we talk because uh, we've just received an email from Peter Dressel, who, with his sister Maggie, uh, have put together a uh, public report, a scientific article, on the question of who talks more in episodes of Dear Hank and John. I'll just read you the abstract. It contains the, most of the relevant information. Since Hank and John have had several arguments about who talks more in the podcast, we figured we would re-listen to the episodes and keep track. The results show that John indisputably talks more. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm a little surprised. I always thought that I was the... Uh, you know, the the quiet really? but surprisingly intelligent one. It turns out that I'm the talkative mm. stupid one. Uh what were the what were the numbers? What is how does it break down? Basically, for every one minute that I am talking, you talk for forty seven seconds. I'm gonna put the whole thing online. You can you can look at me uh look at the Twitter. Uh Twitter John Green. I don't think that's actually if you type in Twitter John Green into Google, <laughs> I bet it'll find me. Yeah. Um and uh you can see the results for yourself. It's an extremely complicated and compelling uh piece of work that uh Peter and Maggie put together in their spare time. So uh thank thanks very much uh to these two students at the University of Iowa, both of whom are clearly geniuses. <laughs> well that is 
seems like it's a fair amount of work to do, and I appreciate them doing it so that I can feel validated and uh, and underappreciated. I'm sure that everyone out there wishes that they got just as much Hank as they got John, if not a little more. Well, Hank, speaking of which, would you like a short poem for today? Let's do that. I guess, you know, you're, you're going to talk more because you do the short poem. Oh, yeah. No, they accounted for that. They said I still talk more even without the short poem. Oh, okay. So, don't you worry. I'm the talkative one. I'm going to read you an E. Cummings poem, that, if I can find it, in my, uh, my, my E. Cummings poem book that I've had since high school. And it's got, it's essentially got all of the poems dog-eared because, you know, at different times in my life, I've liked different poems. But this, uh, given the weather, I thought this one would be perfect. Oh, sweet, spontaneous earth, how often have the doting fingers of purient philosophers pinched and poked thee? Has the naughty thumb of science prodded thy beauty? How often have religions taken thee upon their scraggy knees, squeezing and buffeting thee that thou mightest conceive gods? But true to the incomparable couch of death, thy rhythmic lover, thou answerest them only with spring. Mm. The E. Cummings poem, often known as Oh Sweet Spontaneous, as that is its first line. But yes, sweet, spontaneous life that only gives us spring. We want more, but spring is what we get in this world, Hank. Uh, Not, however, for several months, if the weather outside in Indianapolis is any indication. I would imagine not. Also, if just the the way that the months work is any indication. I mean, it's going to be a while. Uh, I, I take a little bit of issue with the fact that science has prodded uh, or the earth with its thumb and E.E. And e. Cummings thinks that we have only found spring when, in fact, we have found a great deal many useful things. Oh, you've got to give E.E. E. Cummings a little bit of poetic license, Hank. That's all I can say. Well, what is I? Yeah, what does he mean? I, I think he means that, that, you know, scientists prod earth and, you know, uh, they may discover many things, but the butte that they, they, they don't the butte I don't know I don't know I don't know that I agree with that part of the poem actually. Can we move on to questions from our listeners? Maybe the true the true uh, the true gift that the Earth gives. We're just finding things things out about the Earth, but the thing that it will give us is is the spring. Whether we like it or not, spring is coming. But first. Winter is coming. Spring is that's the uh, the sequel the sequel to uh, the the Song of Ice and Fire. Yes, uh, spring is the coming. last book will be called Spring is Coming! Exclamation point, and it'll just be full <laughs> of happiness and joy, and the mother of dragons yeah. will live happily with King Joffrey, and everything will work out wonderfully. <laughs> Oh gosh, they should just they should just be kids and make out in cars. Like in my books. No, I we tried to make those movies. They aren't quite as popular. Uh, let's answer some questions from listeners. All right. This one uh is from Anonymous who has uh, a question about making out and and asks, Dear Hank and John, is it always a bad idea to make out with one's roommate? No. The roommate in question asked me out a few years before we were sharing a flat and I turned him down. I don't know if it's availability, getting to know him better, or just knowing that some attraction was there at some point on his part, but now I feel attracted to him, and I'd love some of your dubious advice. I mean... I believe in making out with people uh, who want to make out with you and who you want to make out with. Yes. I have a pretty straightforward set of beliefs around this called enthusiastic consent. Yes. I think also that it is uh, it is not a bad idea to make out with one of your roommates if they are into that and you are. In fact, it sounds exciting and fun. Uh, and I, I, th- I see that there could 
potentially be down the road problems with this. Uh, you know, and. And that is. Oh yeah, there will there will almost certainly. Yes, and that that is. Sorry, I just cut you off. I'm sorry. I'm the brother who talks. Yes, more. you are. Uh, and I will say that that is also true of everything you ever do in life. Yeah, there are always going to be problems down the road. That's a problem for future you. I don't think you're setting future you up for a necessary definitive disaster just by making out with your roommate. I mean, you might be increasing the chances that, uh, that future you is going to have a problem. But uh, if you try to minimize the chances that future you will ever experience any kind of misery, it's going to be very difficult for current you to have any joy. Yes. Yes, it will be very difficult for current you to do anything outside of the just like a, a wall in uh, center block four by four room. Oh, that sounds very depressing. Why does the room have to be so small? <laughs> it's meters, four by four meters, John. Oh, okay, so that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on, Hank. Uh, this question is from Matt, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm going to propose to my girlfriend in the coming months and would like to buy her an engagement ring. The problem is that buying a customary diamond ring isn't something I'm willing to do unless I can feel confident the store is conflict-free. Is that even possible? I know the Kimberly process is supposed to combat this, but is it really working? I did not do any research on this, John, so I I have no idea, but I'll say what I did for Catherine, which was give her, I gave her an old ring that had been uh, that had been owned by a, a dead relative, and that was like, well, even if this was a conflict diamond when it was mined 80 years ago, it is uh, now what, just going to get thrown away? Like, I'm not sure what else to do with it. Right. I'm a big uh, believer in recycling uh, rings. Um uh, whether it's an estate piece that you get from somebody else or from a jeweler or it's something from someone in your family. Um, I am also a big believer, and I know that this is uh, not particularly old-fashioned of me, uh, but I'm a big believer in having like open and honest conversations in the run-up to an engagement about engagement. Like I know that there's something wonderful about being surprised and everything, but I feel like it... it it puts a lot of pressure on these old-fashioned gender roles to have, uh, you know, one person spend, like, many months uh, discerning whether or not they want to marry the other person, and the other person have to answer a yes or no question in, like, five seconds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Agree. So I would say maybe include your partner in this conversation about the engagement ring, uh... That's maybe a way to also include your partner in this conversation about discerning whether or not it is a good idea to spend the rest of your natural lives together. Indeed, indeed. And also, you know, that you share values. And maybe she doesn't even like diamonds. This is a thing that happens. And maybe she wants a sapphire, uh, which, you know, you also then have to figure out whether it's a conflict-free sapphire. But a lot of sapphires are mined in America, actually. Um... Right here in Montana, which is why I know a fair bit about sapphires. I Yes, John, that is a great point. And I, I think that the number one thing to know is that this doesn't have to be something that uh, is is a secret. And in fact, it was not really a secret in either John or I's case. I, it was kind of a surprise when it actually happened. Um, but, you know, yeah, it didn't, I didn't feel comfortable springing that kind of thing on someone I love out of nowhere. Uh Unless I knew for sure that she was going to say yes. So we talked about but it. But you can still have a little bit of a surprise, right? I mean, you can oh, still sure. have some timing surprise. That's that's right. what we did. Yeah, yeah. 
our engagement was actually a complete disaster. But I think the real the, the real surprise here, Hank, is that you are a sapphire miner. That is not something that I knew about you. <laughs> well, I have mined sapphires, actually. How long have you been mining sapphires? Tell me more. I, I have done that thing where you go out to the place where they have gems in the ground and they give you a bucket of dirt. And then you like put mm-hmm. it through the sluice and like shake a box around until you see mm-hmm. which which rocks look particularly pleasant. And I found a garnet that way once. I didn't find a sapphire. But there are places in Montana where you can go and find sapphires. And then if you find a, a good enough one, you can actually have it cut for more than the price of buying one at a store. And then uh, and then you can have that one be the one that you mount in a ring. And that way it's like uh, you were you were you were indeed the miner of the thing. Though most of the hard work got done before you. You got there of digging the dirt out of the hill, but it's very interesting to me that that is where gemstones come from—just just dirt uh, here in Montana. What? That's weird. How is it that you, I talk more than you? Let's move on to another question. <laughs> this question is from CJ, who asks, "Dear John and Hank, after having gone to countless sporting events, movies, shows, and other events as such, I still cannot figure one thing out. Which armrest is mine?" All right. Well, this is a very, very important it question, is. and Hank happens to be one of the world's leading experts in armrest etiquette. Okay, if there are three seats, particularly if you are on a plane, if you are on one of the outside seats, you get one armrest, the armrest that is clearly yours that no one else can have access to. The person in the middle gets both armrests to themselves. This is the only equitable way to do it. It is the only thing that makes sense because the person in the middle has nowhere to go. That is correct. They are clearly, clearly in the disadvantaged place and should be treated as such unless there is some other extenuating circumstance happening. And uh, that that infuriates me when I have a person next to me who is clearly uh, like just a person. And is taking up my armrest when I'm in the middle and just and like is intentionally doing it. I see them like like as if it is some kind of weird power play that they need to win this uh, this interaction and come out on top and have both armrests to themselves when they already have the aisle seat. There are two kinds of people in this world. Yes. There are people who honor the fact that when all things are equal. The person in the middle seat should have both armrests, access to both armrests, regardless of whether they are using them at any given time. They must have access to both armrests. And then there are monsters. Those are the two <laughs> kinds of people in the world. Now, at a, at a movie theater, uh, unless you are on an aisle, it is going to be a toss up. It's basically going to say, like, you get one uh, unless you're on the aisle when you obviously get the aisle armrest and not the one uh, on the interior of the seat. It's just if you're in the middle, then you take whichever one is available to you. If you are having that problem where two people have ended up just due to stochasticity and, and you know, like there's just going to be a person who maybe ends up with neither armrest and you don't know either person on either side well enough to ask them uh, or, or like nudge them out of the way then you are just going to have a uh, a less enjoyable movie-going experience than you would have otherwise had, mm. and you are going to have to to live with that. I don't agree. No? I don't agree at all. I think there is a way for everyone to have one armrest. Uh, there is, but the, it requires communication, 
and that is no it doesn't require communication it requires a basic understanding of the rules of etiquette where when you are seated at a formal dinner is your water versus the other person's water your water my water yeah, is on like the right hand side is on the right hand side your water is okay. on the right hand side ergo if you are on the aisle the right hand side aisle where your right mm-hmm. hand is on the aisle armrest. That is where you put your drink. And then everyone has their right-handed armrest to put their arm on. And no one has their left-handed armrest to put their arm on, except for the person who is on the other aisle, who is allowed to use both of their armrests. Okay. I see I see that this works. The only way for this to actually function, though, is if people accept this as... Uh, a, a rule of movie theaters, which I think is going to be a very difficult thing to get into the popular culture. I think we have done a good job starting that. Strongly disagree, Hank. Our podcast has a massive reach among moviegoers. It's right. already happened. It's done. We did it. Use your right armrest and put your drink in your right armrest drink holder and everything is going to be fine. And if somebody doesn't do that, just not rudely, not like don't make a big deal of it like we do with the uh, the, the toilet paper over the toilet paper under issue. Not just be like, if you don't mind, there is an established etiquette for these things. It was established by Hank and John Green on a podcast in 2015. If you could just... Use the right-hand side because that is the side you have access to your right armrest. I mean, obviously, if you have a broken arm or something, if there's, you know, disabilities involved, that changes everything. But all things being equal, right armrest is yours at the movie theater. Left left armrest is your uh, next-door neighbor's. I think it it is now time for another question. This one's from Vicky, who asks, Dear Hank and John, help! There is a wasp trapped in my dorm room, and I am allergic. He's been here a while, and we've bonded, so I've named him. I have a sliding glass window, which I usually leave open to the screen to allow airflow. Uh, Otherwise, it gets too hot and stifled in the room. It is very important to note that there are no holes in the screen. I have now trapped Mr. Wasp between the screen and the glass window. What do I do? Because there is no way for him to get out. Also, is there a way to stun a wasp without killing it and or getting stung? My... Mr. Wasp and I want the same thing, for him to not be in my room, so I don't feel comfortable with killing him on a moral level because he probably wandered into my room by accident. Help! Um, okay, so I'm going to level with you here. Uh, this is going to be difficult. I hope that you're seated. Um, presumably, a week and a half later, everything is just as it was. The ma- the wasp is still alive, um, still stuck between screen and window. Um, y- you're going to have to kill the wasp. <laughs> I completely disagree. Or, or you're going to have to let the wasp die, which I suspect may be what has happened in the intervening <laughs> 10 days because we failed to get to your question in time. Ultimately, it is not your fault that Mr. Wasp died. It is entirely our fault. Right, right. There are two. There are multiple uh, reasons why Mr. Wasp died. Uh, Mr. Wasp uh, died because of us. He died because of you. And he died because death is inevitable. Uh, and and Mr. Mr. Wasp was going to die no matter what, and and possibly just just through the act of wandering into your room, it disrupted his his potential lifestyle and his eating habits enough that he he was bound to die. Uh, if Mr. Wasp is still alive, 
uh, by some miracle, just get a person who is not allergic to wasps and who is feeling, you know, brave and chivalrous to help you out and be the person who puts the cup over Mr. Wasp and then slides a piece of paper under the cup and then takes that outside. Uh, and, and I think, but, but however, I think that if you did kill Mr. Wasp, whether by just leaving it there or just being, you know, tired of it, and so you got some wasp spray and, and went outside and, you know, gave it a little bit of a, 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 a you know, a, a jolt, I think that that's okay. I think that Mr. Wasp, you know, was going to have to die and uh and you know it was going to be a sad a death full of suffering no matter what and uh hank it's okay having now celebrated the life of mr wasp i think it's time for us to move on to a new question this one is from our father <laughs> mike green who writes dear john and hank it drives me crazy each week when i hear hank start the podcast with quote where me and my brother john provide dubious advice and news. One time, Hank said, where my brother and I, and it was music to my ears, I thought it was the beginning of a trend, but apparently I was wrong. <laughs> Me and my friend seems to be more and more common uh, versus my friend and I. What is the official position of English grammar enforcers on this important matter, love dad? Well, dad, I will tell you, as your favorite son, that you are correct. That Hank should not be saying me and my brother John, at least from a strict grammar enforcement uh, perspective. He should be saying my brother John and I. However, you are also, and this pains me to say it, incorrect. Because uh, grammar exists to make language as clear as possible. There is no other reason uh, why grammar exists. It exists to make language as transparent as possible so that when we are talking to each other, we are never confused um, we are never uh, we are never put in a we are never put by language in 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 a place of needless ambiguity, um, and me and my brother John is as clear I think to the contemporary listener as my brother John and I. In fact, like the, the me uh, is not going to be confusing to anyone. All it does is trigger something inside of us that says, "Well, wait, that's a mistake." Uh, but if we can put that aside and learn to live with it, which I think we have to, uh, it does not introduce any lack of clarity into the sentence. And therefore, I must reluctantly say that my brother, while technically grammatically incorrect, is not doing something that I, I think we need to, to change. All right. Uh, it's really shocking to me, having heard that, that you talk more than I do on this podcast. Because, uh, boy, you really got to the point fast. Uh, it did not, did not, you didn't wander around at all. You didn't, you know, didn't, it didn't take you any time at all to, to figure out. But I, I will, in addition to that, say that I think I'm providing necessary clarity by saying me and my brother John, because the name of the podcast is Dear Hank and John, which it is because of the nature of the universe. And I want to make sure that people know that me is Hank and that I am the first thing and John is John. He is the second thing. And that's, that is important, I think. I hate to make you back up, um, but did you just say that the name of our podcast is Dear Hank and John because that is the nature of the universe? Right. Yes, that's why it's called Dear Hank and John. It is part of the it's part of the nature of the universe. That's why I I come first in the in the name of the podcast because of the nature of the universe, and so I want to make sure that everybody knows that when you write to us, you should be asking Dear Hank and John, and the email address is hankandjohn at gmail You know, it all has to sort of fall into place. Well, but I came I came first though in the sense that 
you know, I literally was born first. It's dear John and Hank. Our parents have two children, John, their firstborn uh, child, who presumably would inherit the throne were they royalty, and Hank, their secondborn child, who, from what I can tell via Prince Harry, is the one who uh, parties a lot. Yeah, but that that is absolutely the case. Uh, that does not change the fact that due to the nature of the universe, the podcast is called Dear Hank and John, and the email address is Hank and John. And when I say me and my brother John, it is because Hank comes first when in relation to things regarding the podcast. Right, but in relation to things regarding like life and overall privilege and superiority and whatnot, that's that would be me first, John, John and Hank, dear John and Hank. I think that it's important that uh, that Hank and John Green. Uh, look that way, Hank and John Green, uh, for a number for a number of reasons. Uh, one, being the nature of the universe, and two, being uh, search engine optimization, because people are more likely to Google John Green than Hank Green, due to you being alive long enough to have had considerably more success than me. <laughs> that is actually the most compelling pro Hank and John <laughs> argument I have ever heard over John and Hank. You know exactly where to hit me to get what you want, Hank, which is to hit me in my narcissism button. Well, you're search engine optimization button anyway uh i just want to say uh john this podcast is brought to you by needless sibling bickering <laughs> needless sibling bickering uh it's uh it's apparently hopefully enjoyable to people who are not us today's podcast is also brought to you by failing to get to the point dancing around the point <laughs> A John Green strategy for finding ways to talk longer than his brother since 1980. Uh, this podcast is additionally brought to you by Mr. Wasp. Mr. Wasp, very difficult to say, and almost certainly dead. <laughs> and lastly, this podcast is actually brought to you by you, uh, our listeners. Oh. We have just uh, started a Patreon campaign for Dear Hank and John. Uh, so if you head on over to Patreon... Uh, slash dear Hank patreon.com slash dear Hank and John you uh, can become a patron of this podcast and support it directly uh, we're going to be doing monthly uh, hangouts where uh, we'll answer your questions uh, live and talk to you about stuff that interests us right before we record the podcast um, or possibly right after depending on what's going on that week um, we're doing this instead of a traditional sponsorship uh, package with a sponsor. I know lots of that's what most podcasts do, but we're doing this because, uh, well, mostly because we we like it better. We like the idea of working for you better than the idea of working for um, a, a large corporation. And um, also because we feel like it's good to have multiple stakeholders instead of just like the one or two um uh, advertising sponsors that we have. So that's what we're doing with Dear Hank and John. Of course, you don't have to become a patron. It's okay if you don't. The podcast will not change for you in any way. Um, it's just that hopefully the podcast will, will maybe become a little bit better, a little little bit richer for those of you who do become uh, patrons over at patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. Did I ramble on too much, Hank? Uh, you know, you did it. You did it. You did the thing. I I felt for a moment that maybe it would be better if like we traded off things. Like you talked for a little bit about one thing, and then I talked for a little bit about one thing, and then we sounded like we were really in it together and excited about it, which we are, and we are. Uh, but it was yeah, you totally did it, and I don't and and like we didn't prepare that in any way. So of course it would be very difficult to have actually done done that. And I think you did, honestly, as a brother, 
a fantastic job and I'm proud of you. Patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John or Dear John and Hank. That won't take you to the right Patreon page, but it's just a fun thing to type. (laughs) Okay, let's do another question. This one's from Kristen who asks, Dear Hank and John, opinions on this World War III business? Is there World War III business? I hadn't heard about the World War III business, John. Uh, The Pope says that we are in a kind of World War III um, and several other people have said that. I don't know. What do you think, Hank? Ah, well, I, I look at World War One and World War Two, and I think about th- those, and I feel like t- calling this World War Three is is kind of um, kind of a dishonoring the memory of those events, which were which were horrific beyond anything humans have ever experienced. Like we got to remember how bad those things were, and if you think this is anything like how bad that was, then 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 we did not do a good job teaching you history in our in your school system. Yeah, I mean, I'm so I'm mostly inclined uh, to agree with you. Um, I actually think there was sort of a world war before World War One um, around, you know, between like 1846 and 1848. But uh, the only reason that I, I think that we should start to worry that this looks a little bit like World War Three is that the whole world is increasingly drawn up in it. Um, and that, you know, these these failed states in Libya and Syria and in a couple other countries uh, are are of should be of grave concern. Also, also the failed state in Somalia. And, you know, we need we, we need to, th- these places need governments. Mm-hmm. Um, and the longer mm-hmm. they go without governments, uh, the more dangerous it becomes, not just uh, regionally, but to the whole world. But I agree. I don't think that we're in a World War Three, and I don't think that that is a is a helpful way to uh, describe this conflict at all. Because there's plenty of exaggerating going on, right? There's plenty of hyperbole. There's lots of people trying to turn this into a civilizational conflict, which it's just not. And um, I don't want to be part of that because I think history will remember those people uh, as having been very very bad. Yes. Is that fair to say? I, it is, that is fair to say. I, I just want to say that during World War II, 3% of the world's population died. If that happened now, if 3% of, of the world's population died right now, it would be around 200 million people, which is just an awful lot. Yes, let us hope that uh, that this does not become World War Three. I strongly doubt that it will, by the way. I think we have lots of things that keep that from happening. The amazing thing, though, is that the world lost 3% of its populations. Like, like, imagining that if we today had a war in which 200 million people died, which is two-thirds of the population of the U.S., of course, they would be distributed all across the world, that we could then go on and not have that be something that destroyed earth something that destroyed humanity we could go on and and you know and then have you know 60 years of of relative prosperity which is what we have now had after world war 2 or 70 years uh, that is remarkable and i'm i'm proud of it good on that generation for coming out of that and doing great things and and building a a, a pretty great world for their grandchildren and great-grandchildren who I am among. 
Yeah, we just got to uh, Thanks, take care guys. of a lot of the uh, carbon emissions that they created in that process, and we should be fine. <laughs> yeah, well, which, yeah, I mean, fr- frankly, I-, I understand that we have been passed down negative impacts due to all of the fantastic things those people did. And, uh, I, you know, like, like looking at that and saying they only did these nasty things to us, when in fact they did lots of lovely things, and now when they were kids, refrigerators were luxury items, and now everyone has one, and isn't that lovely that I can have, uh, like that that everyone in America has, you know, running hot water and plumbing and and like these are things that that and and that uh, all people can vote who are over eighteen, and that uh, and that you know. Everyone, like in most, in many states, everyone who loves each other can get married, which was not a thing. And, and you know, we, we have an integrated society. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And to me, when you look at American history, you see a slow but fairly consistent march toward uh, more people having more rights. I mean, this country started out with very, very few people being able to vote in our supposed democracy. And uh, these days, um, you know, there are many more people, a much larger percentage of the American population can really participate in the democracy. So while there's much to be concerned about, I also think there's much to be hopeful about. I agree. Uh, John, I have a question from Maggie. The uh, subject line of this is, I finally know who I am. Thanks, BuzzFeed, which I think is the the title of an article that Maggie should write. Uh, she says, Dear Hank and John, what are your thoughts on our cultural fascination with self-definition via online quizzes, personality inventories, and other such means of pigeonholing the ourselves, even if it's ostensibly just for fun. And she asks, uh, like, sort of, like, deeper, more interesting bits of this, uh, but I I just want to sort of leave it at that because... it's just such a big question. I want to make a a series of videos on it. I do find it fascinating how we search out identity and we try to figure out who we are. And it is so difficult for us to do that, to know our own self that we go to BuzzFeed. And as she says, uh, I still find myself wanting to know if I'm pumpkin spice or peppermint mocha. Yeah, I mean... I don't think it's particularly new. Uh, You know, when I was a child, I remember taking those quizzes in YM magazine or in Seventeen magazine, and they were the exact same quizzes that were trying to do the exact same things like, you know, try to help me understand who I am, um, you know, through these silly quizzes. I also used to take them in Cosmopolitan magazine, which one of our mom's friends subscribed to. And like they had a lot of sex tips. So it was the closest that I, you know, the closest thing that I had to like um, what women think about sex, which in (laughs) retrospect, not particularly useful Cosmopolitan magazine. Um, But I would take those quizzes. And even though they were for like adult women in their early 30s trying to figure out like what kind of man they wanted, I would be like, I wonder what kind of man I want. And um, and I found them like tremendously helpful and interesting. So I I find I don't want to like I I find it hard to criticize those quizzes because I think that like trying to figure out who you are, um, whether it's a pumpkin spice latte or your Myers Briggs type, whatever it is, like all of that stuff is part of a process of like trying to understand yourself in this context of knowing that there are six billion other humans out there who are just as human as you are. I like the fact that there are six billion other humans because apparently you are one billion humans. Are there seven billion humans? Sorry. There's, yeah, there, there are more than 7 billion humans. We just keep making them. <laughs> we do. It's, it's the one thing we're real good at. It's very interesting to me that we know how many people there are on Earth. It's such a difficult logistical problem to have been able to, to, to overcome. But anyway, my answer is, is roughly the same. The only thing that I will say to people who are uh, 
trying to define themselves, whether based on quizzes or based on, uh, you know, like sort of the, the types that we that we assign, uh, whether that's introvert or extrovert or, you know, all the Myers-Briggs types. I'd say that in my life, I have I have changed myself many times and I have found that who I am uh, relates much more to who I think I am than to who I am. And my, you know, I, I find it not difficult, and I don't know if I'm unique or if, if I'm like unusual in this, but I find it not difficult to be different from me one day, uh, one day later, you know, and, and certainly one year or 10 years later. And I, I'm very glad that I am not stuck in oneself and, and I am constantly excited to be to be a different person sometimes and to try different things and to and to not do things that I feel like that that's not a thing that Hank Green would do that does not seem like a Hank Green thing and then to do that thing and to be like well you know maybe Hank Green isn't who I thought he was um and to not be constrained by the our perception of ourselves oh my god it's burning (laughs) just trying to help you out This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Chobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Yep. I don't, I'm not cooking anything right now, but I'm sure someone is. Check the oven, you guys. Is your burner still on? Does your dog need a walk? Don't get too caught up in Dear Hank and John. Are you waiting at the gate at the airport and maybe have forgotten that you, in fact, need to get on the airplane? Go now! Hank, we have a very important question from Talia. This is one that only you can answer. It's really in your way. I was going to say wheelhouse, but for some reason it came out whalehouse. Um, this one is really, really in your whale house, Hank. Uh, it is right where your whales live. How did you know about my whale house? <laughs> that was supposed to be a secret. All right, Hank. This question's from Talia. Are hot dogs sandwiches? Well, you know, John, it, it, 
the fact that you are asking this question makes me think that you don't do not listen to enough podcasts. This is one of the legendary questions of the Judge John Hodgman podcast, uh, where where he goes into deeply into whether hot dogs are sandwiches. And his conclusion, John Hodgman's conclusion, and I'm I'm absolutely enthusiastic to adopt his stance on this, is that hot dogs are not sandwiches. And why they are not sandwiches, frankly, I don't care that much because John Hodgman said they are not. If you would like to hear his reasoning, you can go listening to that you can go listen to that episode of the Judge John Hodgman podcast, which is a lovely, wonderful podcast that I would say is uh is about ten percent funnier than Dear Hank and John. But they do not talk about death as much as we do. So we have that on Speaking them. of which, Hank, it is time to get to the news uh, from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Would, we, would you like to begin this week with the news from Mars or should we go straight to AFC Wimbledon? Let's go to AFC Wimbledon first so I can finish out the news for once. Okay, so Hank, let me ask you to do a thought experiment and also everyone listening right now. Obviously, don't close your eyes if you're driving or whatever, but um, close your eyes. Hank, you close your eyes. Close your eyes if you're in a place where you safely can. And what do you see when you close your eyes? Uh, like little green sparkles. Okay, now I want you to imagine that you are deep inside the world's deepest cave, uh, which, as I recall, is in Vietnam. You're deep, you're 5,000 feet down in the world's deepest cave, and you've got your eyes closed. You've got your lamp off. You are in what is called cave darkness. And I want you to open your eyes right now, Deep inside that cave, tell me what you see. I see nothing, and it is it is so intensely nothing that it it feels like a sensation on the back of my eyes. Hank, right now, you are in the very same darkness that AFC Wimbledon is in. <gasps> no! Yesterday, as I am recording this podcast last week, as you are listening to it, AFC Wimbledon lost to Dag and Red. Dag and Red, who were in the relegation zone in 23rd place. Oh. They lost to Dag and Red at home at Kings Meadow. 1-0, an, an 80, 80th minute goal from a goalkeeper mistake resulted in a Dag and Red goal. And I mean, this is not just the kind of game that we can't lose. It's the kind of game that we can't tie. Um now, despite, and, and, and the game before that was, it was a draw, uh, and d- despite these recent disappointments and the cave darkness that surrounds us, we remain in 11th place, uh, just three points out of sixth, uh, and sixth is it would be high enough to go to the playoffs to get at least have a chance to get promoted up to League One. However, th- that result uh, is very worrisome. The fact that we couldn't score a goal against Dagon Red, the fact that we couldn't keep a clean sheet against Dagon Red, both of these things, very, very worrisome. However, wonderful news if you are a Dag or a Red, uh, as you are now out of the relegation zone, putting York City and Yeovil Town down there in the bottom two that would go down, be they would be demoted out of um, the, the football league entirely into the conference. Um, and when you are d- demoted out of the football league, it, it can and often does mean that you cease to be a full-time professional team. Um, so, of course, nobody wants that. But AFC Wimbledon still in 11th, despite uh, two uh, not, not, not good results. Um, 19 games in uh, to a 46-game season. Uh, we are in 11. Well, it doesn't hurt more to lose to those teams. It just it's the same number of points lost or not gained or whatever. 
it's not like that you lose to a really bad team and you lose more points somehow. That's true. It's just much harder to win against the very good teams. So you would like to win against the bad teams. Right. So you, you should you should be winning. Yes. If you're going to be if you're going to be playing bad teams, you really got to score those points when you can. I guess that makes sense. Right. Because we, we still have a lot of games against the teams at the top of the table, the likes of Plymouth and uh, right, Oxford right. and mm-hmm. uh Accrington Stanley. That's too bad. That's too bad. All right. Well, uh, in Mars news, we have. It's always so hard to pick the Mars news, but but this year, I'm this year, this day, I'm going to tell you that Buzz Aldrin was recently giving a speech, uh, and he let loose some news that uh, John F. Kennedy, when talking to people about uh, about the next step in the space race wanted that next step instead of going to the moon to be going to Mars. And he went to MIT and he talked to a bunch of smart people and he said, I want you to tell me whether or not we can go to Mars. Like, I want you to tell me how we can get Americans on the surface of Mars in the next, you know, like short term, like 15 months or something. Uh, You know, not not 15 months fast and (laughs) wouldn't we have to leave in like a week (laughs) yes uh sooner than that uh that's negative time so he went to those engineers and they he asked them to figure it out and they came back to the president of the united states john f kennedy and said uh no we can't do that it is it is according to buzz aldrin they said it's just a little too far to go which is an interesting thing like you know the reason why mars is where mars is has a little bit to do with how the solar system was formed but also a little bit to do with randomness and mars could be closer it could be you know earth could be smaller there could be a number of different things that would make it a lot easier to get to mars but uh they are not that way and so the reason we can't get to mars has a lot to do with just the randomness of how the solar system formed or that we haven't gotten to Mars yet. Not that we can't get to Mars. Of course we can, and we will. But in 1969, uh, yeah, John F. Kennedy wanted to go to Mars, and and a bunch of smart people told him instead that the moon, the moon was a more realistic goal, and we should go for that. And of course, we were able to accomplish that, and that is fantastic and wonderful. You said 1959, right? I said 69. Well, John F. Kennedy had Didn't been I? had been deceased for some time in 1969. <clears throat> Sorry. That is when they wanted to get there. Ah, that seems more reasonable. <laughs> Th- suddenly, thanks. suddenly, I felt that I had glimpsed perhaps the greatest conspiracy in American <laughs> history, and Hank had uncovered it. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, thanks for being the history buff who knows things like when presidents died. That's okay. Thanks for being a guy who knows how to spell hygienist. <laughs> well, I can I can be that person for you, John. Thanks. So, Hank, what did we learn today? Uh, We learned that if you want to make out with your roommate and your roommate wants to make out with you, then that is a thing that you should just do. Well, at least in the opinion of two people who give extremely dubious advice. Yeah, indeed. Exactly. We also learned that the Earth could be smaller or Mars could be closer, (laughs) but it isn't. (laughs) And it isn't. (laughs) Is that something that you learned? That things could be. I mean, I kind of learned it. I've, it's never occurred to me that the Earth could be smaller. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to th- like. It, it could be like that. That you know, like the way that stuff got distributed. That that Mars would have been bigger than Earth. Like it's it's very uh, it's very interesting. I, uh, Mars is weird. Mars is weird. It's super interesting, John. Anyway, sorry. I get 
excited about things and I cannot articulate why. And so I th- say things like Mars is weird and I I smile widely while saying it, which doesn't make a lot of sense. You, <laughs> uh, How is it that I talk more than you on this podcast? <laughs> well, I'm trying to make it even. That's, I'm t- doing my best to talk more. We'll see. We'll see. People are going to have to tell us if, if I caught up with you or indeed surpassed you in this week's podcast. But um, we also learned that, uh, that the proposal of marriage is not necessarily something that should be a surprise. In fact, it may be something that should be talked about a little bit before a thing that happens. And we learned that... Especially... What? Nothing. I was going to say, especially if you do it in a sports game or something. Just don't do that. Don't... Not with all those people staring. And of course, we learned that if you are in the middle seat, both armrests are yours by law and by right. And that if you were in a movie theater... We are instituting a policy where everybody, all things being equal, gets the right hand armrest. Except for the person on the left hand side who gets two armrests. Woo! Congratulations, person on the left aisle. And we're gonna in twenty forty five we're gonna go into a movie theater and and the first seat that will be taken in every movie theater in America will be down the left-hand side. And that will be <laughs> something that we did. Oh, I hope it ends up on my tombstone, Hank. In the meantime, <laughs> I hope that everyone had a happy Thanksgiving, including you, Hank. I wish that we were spending it together, but instead we are spending it apart. Um, you can email us your questions at hankandjohn at gmail.com. You can also ask us questions on the Twitters. Uh, hashtag Dear Hank and John. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at John Green. Hank is at Hank Green. Again, our Patreon. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so via Patreon, a voluntary subscription service. There's some good perks. Patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. Uh, it's very important to Hank that you know his Snapchat. It's Hank. My Snapchat is Hank GRE. Hank GRE. Uh, and <clears throat> yeah, I, I, uh, I think that you're missing out. That's all I'm saying is I think you're missing out if you're not following me on Snapchat. I'm not saying that like, boy, I want so much Snapchat followers. There's nothing that I want more than that. It's like, it's something that I'm doing for you, people of the listening. Um, Speaking of which, Hank, could you share with them th- that I also have a Snapchat? Yeah, but you don't use it. I use it sometimes. I never see your story. I don't know. Maybe I don't look enough. Well, no, just tell them what my Snapchat is. It's fine. Uh, your Snapchat is John Green Snaps. How did you know that? I'm pro- I thought you wouldn't know. Yes. yes. It I it just it it just occurred to me that it couldn't be John Green and then I was like, but it's John Green something and then I remember. It's John Green Snaps, which also I learned way after coming up with the username is John Green's Naps. <laughs> John Green's Naps. <laughs> you should just <laughs> upload yourself napping to Snapchat. That would be amazing. All right. Well, this has been the longest outro we've ever recorded, but thanks again for listening. This podcast was edited by Nick Jenkins. The theme music is from Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, be awesome. awesome.